It's good to see all of you this morning. I'm glad you're here with us worshiping. Ephesians chapter 6 is where we continue today. We also will be partaking Lord's Supper a little later on at the end of service. So looking forward to that also. But Ephesians 6, our focus this morning will just be two verses, verses 10 and 11. We've made our way almost through all of Ephesians, five and a half chapters just about accomplished and worked through. I want to remind you of some of the things that we have seen. I know review isn't always the funnest thing, but it will help us to get the overall picture of what's going on as we get to the end of what Paul wants to say to this, to this church. We've been told so far what God has done for us in Christ. You remember Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about all that God has done for us, his bride, as we just sung about. We've seen that God has revealed to us the great mystery of the ages. There's no more Jew or Greek. That God has broken down all those barriers in, in Christ, that salvation has come for all. We've been told how the Holy Spirit has completely filled us as believers. It's not something we try to obtain more of, that when God saves you by his grace through faith, you're given completely the Holy Spirit. There's no more need for that. There's no more having to go back and say, hey, fill me some more. No, you're overflowing with the Spirit. And then we've been seeing in chapters 4 through where we are today, how this then plays out in our life. This is true for us. If God really has saved us, if he's really done all this, then how is that going to play out? And especially lately, we've been talking about our relationships. So our relationship together as a church family, our relationships uh, as spouses, parents, children, and even last week, looking at slaves and masters, and how then that unfolds because of the gospel and the impact that it has there. Well, what Paul's beginning to talk about here is he's going to finish the book of Ephesians, reminding the church of who they fight against. And it's important for us to remember this. And then not just who we fight against, but what God has done for us within this war and within the battles that we face, it seems, on a minute-to-minute -minute basis. I think you would agree with that. But it is important for us to remember who we were before Christ, before, before God shed his grace on us. What was what was going on in our life? And it's important for us to be reminded about this because what Paul is going to teach here in the rest of Ephesians. So I just want us to remember, if we, if we can, who we were before Christ. And Paul talks about this in Ephesians chapter 2, the first three verses. And again, I want to read this because where we're headed is Paul's going to remind us to stay strong in the Lord. He's going to tell us this. Stay, stay strong in the Lord. And we want to know what is he talking about, about being being strong? Strong against what? You know, what what is Paul really meaning here? Well, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 through 3 was a dark sermon, if you remember it, when we preached it. Because it talks about, again, who we were before Christ. It says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Important for us to remember, even as Christians, that before Christ was a part of our life, before we were saved by him, 
we were completely lost in our sin with no hope whatsoever in and of ourselves. Because Paul tells us in what I just read that we were dead in our sin, no hope whatsoever found at all. In fact, it says we were enemies of God, serving Satan himself, which is a horrible thing to think about. But that's what we were doing as we lived this life of sin. And the fact of the matter is, what we see there is we cannot just simply pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and say, come on, Tim, you can do this. No, you can't. I'm dead. I'm dead. You might lay me in my casket one day and you might put boots on me, but I got to tell you, I don't, I don't need them. I'm not going to get up. I'm not going to walk around. There's no more battles to be fought for me. I am, I'm dead. And this is where we found ourselves apart from Christ, completely dead in our sin. And the fact of the matter is some of you today are still in that position. Just because you come to church this morning does not mean you've been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus. And so some, again, hearing my voice, this describes you, verses 1 through 3. You're completely lost in your sin. You, you might be thinking, oh, I'm not that bad of a person. Look, the Bible is very clear. One sin separates you completely from God. And it's deserving of death. And if you're really honest with yourself, you know that you have this struggle within you, that you continue to do things you're not supposed to do. You sin against God each and every day. And so where you find yourself today is lost and hopeless. But that wasn't the end of Ephesians 2. The next week, we see the big reveal, if you want to say, because in verses 4 through 10, at the beginning, we get the very important phrase, but God. Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Remember that huge phrase, but God. Remember just last week, we were talking about that relationship of slaves and masters, which was an uncomfortable discussion. But Paul would say to them, but God, because of what God has done in your life, this relationship can change. The gospel has an impact even here. You, slave, worthless, right? You have no worth in the world. Find complete worth in Christ. Right? I mean, we, how, how open is the gospel there? That even the slave could be saved. But it's because it wasn't about the slave. It wasn't about the master. It was about what God had done for them. What seems impossible to us is not impossible to God. Because God, why? He's rich in mercy, we see here. Love and grace just pours out on believers. The life of Jesus is given completely to us by that grace through faith. So this is, I want us to remember this as we continue to talk through Ephesians 6 because it's so important to remember where we came from and what, what God has done for us in Christ. God has done this out of the kindness of his own heart. God, out of his grace and mercy, has given us as believers a, a life worth living. I'm not saying it's an easy life, 
but it's a life that gives worth to it. Almost every funeral that I go to or I'm a part of, I hear, I hear the same phrase. If I didn't have my faith in Christ, I don't know how I would go through this. You're exactly right. You're exactly right. The only reason we have hope at those things is because of Christ and what he has done. Because apart from him, there is no hope in that room. There are no good words to be said about whoever it is that is lying in that casket. Because then that would mean for us they died without hope. So I want us to have this in mind as we move forward this morning in verses 10 and 11. Paul says, as he's closing up this book, he says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. I want to stop there. This phrase in verse 10, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, is reminiscent of a passage that we have already looked at in Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1 verse 19 says this, and also 20 I'll read. It says, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. So this, this wording here in Ephesians 1.19, the immeasurable greatness of his power is the exact same phrase that we see in verse 10. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. You might say, well, that's kind of nerdy that you're bringing this up. Yes, I understand that, but I think there's a, a purpose here. And there's a reason that Paul is using the exact same phrase. Because when Paul uses that phrase in Ephesians chapter 1, the power that God is showing off in his might is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the power that's being talked about here. The power that raised Christ up from the dead is the same power that Paul is reminding us to relish in, to sit in, to know that this power is in you because of what God has done in you. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Well, how strong is he? Well, he's strong enough to raise Jesus from the dead. That's how strong it is. And that's the same strength that we are to be relying on as Christians each and every day. Our strength as Christians, remember, he's writing to Christian believers filled with the Spirit. And so if you're a Christian this morning, I really hope that this is beneficial to you. I hope this is encouraging to you. Paul is reminding us Your strength to be a good Christian does not come from yourself. You don't have the capability to do this. It's through the power of the gospel that you can do this each and every day. Each and every day. And so sin comes, does it not? From all directions, all the time. And it hits so hard in our life all the time. As Christians, it seems, each and every day, we fall. Each and every day, we fail. Now, you might be looking at me and saying, well, speak for yourself. Great for you, I guess. But I think you're living in a lie. We struggle to do the things that we know God wants us to do. Even the simple things, it's just so difficult for us. And so as a result, we find ourselves sinning, even as Christians, saved by God's grace, knowing that sin is bad and wrong, and even knowing the book. Knowing what the Bible says, we still choose to sin often. 
And the reason we don't want to think about it a lot and we don't want to talk about it a lot is because of how embarrassing it is. It's extremely embarrassing when we as believers continue to sin. It's hurtful to our pride. And if it's like, if you feel it like I do, it's completely tiring. It just wears you out. Because you, you go about and you're doing whatever and you sin again, whatever it is. And usually what God does is he reminds us, you did it again. And it's just, oh my gosh, again, again. And you feel this shame and you feel this guilt come over you again. And maybe at times you think, you know what? I can't do it. Maybe I just need to stop. Maybe I just need to give in, whatever it is, that, that sin that constantly is nagging on us, even as believers, over and over and over, continues to embarrass, hurt, and tire us out. Yet Paul's reminding us here, Christian, spirit-filled believer, live in the power of the gospel. This isn't just the day that you come forward and kneel and, and say, I believe, or wherever it was that you could say, you know, God saved you. It's not just talking about that. Paul is saying every moment of every single day, live in the power of the gospel. Know what God has done for you every day, believer. That's how you stay strong in the Lord. You see, some of us in this room have become really good at the church game. We've almost seemed to perfect it. We live a pious life when it comes to religion. But the problem with that is we start to trust in our own power for obeying God and in his word. Now don't get me wrong. There is an aspect of us where we need to strive to be holy. We do. I'm, not, I'm not trying to negate that. Please don't understand it this way. But as you strive to be holy, you and I both know that we cannot do it perfectly. We still sin. But we start to think, as we've been church apart maybe our whole life, we've been saved for a long time, whatever it is, we start to think, I've got this thing down. And what Satan does is Satan starts to use that in our life to put our faith in our own goodness. We start to think that God's love for us is based on how good I am. And then when we do fall, it destroys. It destroys us. And so Satan even knows how to use our our goodness against us. But there's others in the room. You struggle maybe with the opposite thing. Because sin seems to almost always make you comatose. All you think about is the sin in your life. And you, you are almost paralyzed as a result of it. You, you seem to think of phrases in your mind like this a lot. There's no way God can use me because dot, dot, dot. That's what you think. And Satan's got you right where he wants you. Because you, just like the others in the room, are relying on your own power to do the work God has given you to do. You're relying on your own goodness. Now, the others might be filled with pride about their goodness. You're filled, sadly, with the same thing, pride. It just plays itself out differently. But sin seems to have you so wrapped up, and so Satan uses this against you to doubt your faith, to make you doubt your ability to do anything good in the world whatsoever. And you as well need to be reminded where your power lies. 
It lies in the finished work of Christ that is in your life. It's not in how good you were yesterday or how much of the Bible reading plan you read last week. It's in the finished work of Jesus, complete, secure, and final. And so we have to be willing to go forth and and live for Christ in this power. It's amazing how God, and the Bible talks about this often, how God uses these failures in our life, these failures in sin, to draw us closer to him. I know this sounds odd. I know it sounds extremely odd, but God in his sovereignty, God in in his perfect plan and rule, even uses our sin to help us see our great need for him more and more and more. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7 through 10, Paul speaks of this. He says, So, to keep me from being conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me, what? From becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak... Then I am strong. What is Paul getting at here? Paul's pointing out this truth to us as as believers. God will use whatever it takes to draw you closer to him. Whatever it takes, because God knows what is best for you is to have a relationship with him. And so he wants you relying on him fully. He wants you 100% committed to him, not committed to you, committed to him, committed to his truths. And so even Paul would pray to God and say, get rid of this out of my life. And what is the answer? No, I'm using this to draw you closer to me. I'm using this so that you will not be conceited, Paul. I don't want you to think that you are so mighty and great that you're out doing this on your own. You're not. Because God says, all it takes is for me to remove a hedge of protection, and you're done. You're toast. You're over. We see it in other places. Peter as well. I will not deny you. (laughs) You bet? Let's see it. Before, Before the day's over, you're toast. What happened? Peter sins. Denies our Lord and Savior. But what does that do? How does God use that in Peter's life? I'm not saying it was good for him to go and sin, but I'm saying in God's great sovereignty, how did God use that? He drew Peter closer to him. Drew him closer to him, where Peter now saw his weakness. Peter wasn't as strong as he thought, and he realized, oh man, I need the Lord each and every day. This shows the great love that God has for us. A love that is willing to do anything for our own good. In fact, the strength and might that's talked about here, like I said, was that in Ephesians, reminding, reminding us again of that same power that draws us as the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. God has loved us so much that he's even equipped us with everything we need in order to fight temptation and to withstand temptation. 
That's where verse 11 comes into play. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Paul introduces us here to this armor of God, something that if you've been in church very long, you've heard about. We love to teach this to our children because we can get a good picture, maybe a soldier, and say how everything needs to be worn and talked about it. And we'll get into that in the next few weeks together. But I think what's important here to point out is Paul instructs us here to put on the whole thing. It's not piecemealed. It's not just a part of it. It's not something that as believers we can say, well, you know, I just didn't have the belt on very tight today, I guess. No, it doesn't work that way. It's the whole thing. All of it together. And this is important. Because without any little piece of it, listen, you are without any hope. You are without, you have zero hope if you do not have the whole armor of God on you. I've heard it, I've heard it said at times uh, from people. You know, I wake up in the morning and I make sure to put on the armor of God. I sit on the edge of my bed and I, I say it all, I recite it all, and I, I sit there and put it on. There's a couple problems with that. One we'll look at in a second. But number, the, the big problem is you need it on when you sleep. Say, so what are you talking about? You think you're all good when you're sleeping? You think sin has no impact in your life when you're sleeping? You think Satan is sleeping when you're sleeping? That you're all safe and sound? No. As believers, we need the armor of God on all the time. We are completely hopeless, as I said, without it. Satan never rests, and we can't either. 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Someone's you. Somebody is me. Satan is always at us. And so this armor must always be on, completely. We have to remember that. Know this too. God has fully given you this armor as a believer. Again, it's not about you. It's not something you have to go put together yourself. And God's saying, as you grow as a Christian, you'll get the belt. As you grow a little more, the shield and the sword and the... No, it doesn't work that way. When God saved you by grace through faith, this armor is yours. And you say, well, how? In Christ. In Christ, it is completely yours fully. Because Romans 13, 14 says this. Listen, this is the same author. This is Paul talking to another church. But listen how he words it here. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. So when Paul's talking to the Romans about overcoming sin in your life, how to, how to fight temptation in the devil, what he tells them is he says, Put on Christ. Now, the way he words it here to the Ephesians is put on the whole armor of God. It's the same thing. What we need to have is we need to have Christ. We, we need to put on Christ. And so I want us to remember that. Our armor is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Listen, the armor that you wear when you go into battle every single day, it's not some shiny, pretty thing that you would see like in the Middle Ages or whatever in, in Europe. You don't have armor like that. I, I don't have any armor like that. 
It's not an armor that you can take home and shine and buff out the stains and all this stuff. You, you, can't, you can't do that as a Christian. And it's because of this. The armor that you wear is an armor that has already been through the war. Because it's the armor that Christ has. It's the armor that he wore. It's the armor that he battled Satan with. It's the armor that he had on when he declared on that cross, it is finished. Jesus won the war with the armor he has now given you to wear. That's what the armor is. It's not something you can fancy up. It's not something that you even really make your own. Christ has made it for you. Because of this, we trust our armor to do its job. See, armor is an interesting thing because armor is not really a weapon. It's not really an offensive, an offensive move. It's more of a defensive move to put on the armor. But yet that's what God says he's given us to withstand the principalities and powers, to withstand Satan, which we'll talk more about next week. And we must trust our armor to do its job. Again, we will grow more into our armor. We'll grow to understand faith more, righteousness more, truth more. We need to be trying to do that as believers. That's why we come here this morning to hear the word preached. That's why you go to Sunday school, to learn more about the word of God, to understand this more and to trust in it more. So hopefully as Christians every day, we are learning and trusting more in our armor we do all of this, why? Because of Paul's last statement that he said in verse 11. To stand against the schemes of Satan. We'll focus more on this next week, like I said, but just a few things to close us out when it comes to Satan. Please know this. The Bible tells us very clearly that Satan is real. It's not some false figure it's not just some analogy or allegory for just general evil in the world. The Bible tells us straight, there is one called Satan. And he is a lion, prowling, trying to destroy, doing anything he can to push back against the kingdom of God. Today in our world, many people will deny that Satan is real. But as Christians, we must stand firm to say, no, Satan is real. The Bible tells us this. In our reading this week in Luke, if you're reading along in the New Testament, we saw Jesus himself tempted by Satan. And when was he tempted? You remember when he tempted Jesus? When Jesus was at one of his weakest points, fasting for days and days and days, starving, no doubt, tired, ready to, ready to be done with this. But then that's when Satan went and attacked him and tempted him and drove him out into the desert and tempted him with these different things. And we believe because of God's word, this was real. This was true. Satan doesn't just go after you and me, but he went after Jesus as well. We also know this about Satan in scripture. He's extremely crafty, extremely crafty. He has seen humans for all our existence. Satan knows all of our weaknesses. He knows all of our struggles. And Satan knows exactly how to attack us. And he does it well. We have to be ready for that. Because he also knows, remember this, he also knows the work of Christ. Satan knows very clearly what Jesus did. 
Satan knows very well that the war is done. He knows he's lost. He's not blind to that. Yet because knowing the work of Christ and knowing it very well, he'll even try to use things in God's word against us, try to trick us and sway us. Any way that he can pervert the gospel in our life, he will do it. As I mentioned before, he will try to make you think you are so good at this game that maybe I don't really need as much of Christ. I'm doing pretty good on my own. Or he'll try to make you so low to make you think, there's no way I'm a Christian. I said this again this week. After hearing those messages on how we're supposed to treat our spouses and our kids, there's no way I'm a Christian. No way. Satan loves using that. He loves doing that in our life. Why? Because he's so crafty. He's not just crafty. We see in the Bible that Satan is deadly. Any inch you will give him, he will use it to destroy you. Any inch at all. And there is a fact that we don't like to think about. But those apart from Christ will spend an eternity in hell with Satan, their master. I told you, he lost. His destiny has already been written. Where he will be for eternity has been written. He's taking with him as many as possible because he hates God and he hates our Savior, Jesus. And I think this is a great warning for us as Christians because Satan doesn't stop just because you have been saved. We need to take our sin very seriously because if you give Satan just the tiniest little bit, it's gonna take a mile. Say, well, Pastor Tim, how do you know this? I know it because he does it in my life. And if you're honest with yourself, you know it because he's done it in your life. It ain't gonna hurt you to watch this movie. You watch the movie, but then it leads to something else usually. Leads to this. It ain't gonna be too bad if you say this to your wife and you say it. But that's just the start of the conversation. The next thing you know, you're lost in just a horrible conversation that should have never been brought up. That's all because of your pride as a husband and your selfishness that has now led to a huge argument. And you're thinking, how in the world did I get here? Because you gave him an inch. You gave him an inch. And he knows your heart. And he knows how to twist you. And he knows how to cause you to sin. And so we cannot take lightly how deadly Satan is, even for us as believers. And lastly, we need to remember this. God has given us in Christ absolutely everything we need to withstand Satan. Because as I talk about this, it might sound like a losing battle. But as believers, we are no losers. We are victorious. You remember what Spencer read a little bit ago, Romans chapter 8, verses 30 throughout the end of the chapter. What does it say? It says, oh, the world may push against you. Everything, the principalities, the powers of this world, they might push against you. But listen, as Christians, what? You will never be separated from the love of God. Never. Never be separated from the love of God. These are words that need to be in our mind often. Even as we're struggling in sin, even as we're doubting, whatever it might be, we hold to the truth of God's word. This is who you say you are, God. In Ephesians 1 through 3, this is what you say you have done for me in Christ. I hold to this. Let it be true. 
I've been debating if I wanted to read this. It's a little longer than what I would normally do for a quote. But I know for me, this was really good this week in studying this passage, and it was a good reminder. Because I'm just like you. I struggle with sin. I struggle with doubt. I struggle with things all of the time. And Satan seems to constantly be at me, be at me about whatever it might be. And so studying this passage was very good for me this week. And this was a book that I have by Ian Duguid called The Whole Armor of God. And just bear with me as I read it. It's just a page front and back. I actually tested myself this morning. I can do it in two minutes, so bear with me. I hope it's good for you like it was for me. It says, nothing teaches us the power of Satan or our utter dependence upon God more than our constant spiritual failures. If I make repeated resolutions to give up a certain sin and I fast and pray and still find myself giving into it, what else can I conclude but that I am indeed the weakest of Christians? When I resolve over and over, not to say the unkind and prideful words that are repeatedly spring into my mind, but still find myself hurting people and exalting myself regularly, what shall I say except, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Nothing gives us more passion for the righteousness of Christ than a specific and growing awareness of our brokenness. When I am strong and living the Christian life well, I may be fond of the gospel as a concept, when I see more clearly the ongoing depth of my sinfulness, then I cling to the gospel like a drowning man to a lifeboat. Nothing gives us a greater desire for the completion of the Spirit's work on the last day and our full deliverance from the battle against this body of death than those times when conflict with remaining sin in our lives is at its fiercest. Those who are not yet believers in Christ are often comfortable with their sin. For them, there really is no struggle. But when God begins to work, people start to see the ugliness of their own heart. And they begin to sense their need of a redeemer, someone to rescue them from themselves. Jesus is precisely that redeemer who both fights the battle in their place and then engages the battle inside and alongside them through the powerful work of the Holy Spirit. This is where it really picks up. Life is a battle for Christians. I wanna stop there. Life is a battle for us as Christians. If it's not for you, I don't know what you're doing as a Christian. It is a bad, I'm not talking about going out there and sharing the gospel with everybody you see. I'm talking about inside your own heart. Life is a battle as a Christian if you're dealing seriously with your sin and who God is and what he's done for you. You feel this, oh wretched man that I am, again, fail, again, fail. God has promised us it's going to be a battle. Life is a battle. Jesus told his disciples to take up their cross, not to take up their armchair. We're engaged in conflict against an enemy whose strength and skill far outmatch our own. But it's a battle that we have been equipped to fight. And in the sure knowledge that we've been enlisted on the winning side, we take up our cross because our Savior first took up his. We wear God's armor because Jesus wore it first. In the final analysis, standing our ground simply means clinging desperately to Jesus Christ as our only hope of salvation. In that attitude of dependent trust is true victory. For all of his power and wiles, Satan has no ability to snatch away those who are trusting in Christ. For they are the children of God and their father will not let them go. They've been entrusted by the father into the safekeeping of the son and are indwelt by the spirit himself. Everything you need for your salvation has been accomplished for you by Jesus Christ. 
And he himself is now working in you by his spirit to work out that salvation. Sometimes God will demonstrate his power in you by enabling you to stand strong against Satan's devices. But at other times, his purpose is graciously to allow you to fall, to teach you equally important lessons about your own weakness and the glorious sufficiency of his grace to save and sustain the weakest of the weak. Either way, the glory will all be his on the last day. Last paragraph says, so be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take your stand against the devil, protected by the armor that God has provided. Fight the good fight with all your might. Wrestle with all the energy that the spirit gives you. But in the midst of that standing, fighting, and wrestling, don't forget to rest in the finished victory of Christ and the assurance that the Spirit's perfect sanctifying work in your life is what counts. See, when we walk into this room every week, I oftentimes say, some of you are coming into this room, you've had a good week. Some of you are coming into this room and you've had a bad week. And I'm sure that's true. But what is really true of all of us as believers, all of us as believers are walking into this room just finishing battle. We're tired. We're wore out. And for some of you, you never even left your house all week. You work from home. You do Zoom. And it's just you. But you know, you've battled yourself all week. Satan has thrown fiery darts, whatever it might be. But when we gather in this room together as a church, this is what God has given us in corporate worship. We gather together as the Lord's army who's faced battle. But we're reminded by his truth of this. You are his. You are his. And you might have struggled this week. It might have been a really tough week spiritually for you. But you're no loser. You're no loser. Because when God sees you, he sees his son. He sees his perfect blood. He sees his perfect righteousness in your place. And yes, we should strive to do better. Yes, the Bible says that. Yes, do that. But listen, as he said in this book, Satan can hurt you. Satan may harm you. Satan can never, ever remove you from the grasp of God. And that's what Paul's reminding us here. Stand strong in this, my child. You're my child. And nobody can stop that. Nobody can take that away from you. Nothing. One of the things that we're about to do, we're about to partake in Lord's Supper. And this is one of the things that Lord's Supper reminds us of as believers. We gather here together and we believe the Bible tells us that for Christians, he's given us this cup and this bread, so bread and juice we have, to represent the body of Christ. And one of the purposes of this supper that we do it together, I say this all the time, it puts all of us in here as believers on a level playing field. There, there's no number one hitter in here when it comes to this communion. We are all sinners who are lost and deserving of death, but God in his great kindness and mercy reached out and saved us. And we owe everything to him. We're all on the same footing. We're all on the same playing field. And none of us as believers can be separated from that love.
And as we take this Lord's Supper, that's what we're reminded of. This is the great love that God has for you in your life. And I'm talking to you as a sinner. You probably did some embarrassing things this week, some awful things this week, that if we could see your mind, you would be ashamed. There's no way you would walk into this room. But even with that, God loves you and says, you're not separated from me. I knew this when I saved you by my grace. You're mine, and I love you, and I care for you. I hope you find that encouraging this morning. For those of you who maybe are not Christians, you, you toy around with the idea. You might even tell people you know God or that you appreciate God or that you read your Bible. But you know deep down you've never fully trusted in Christ and his saving work and what he accomplished on the cross and his death, his burial, and his resurrection. You know you've never done that. I hope this morning you would see how much God loves you and does for his own. And I hope and pray that God, through the power of the Spirit, is working in your life to help you to see, I did this for you. So that the same joy, hope, and peace that I have in my life, not because of me, but because of him, that you will understand it too. I'm going to ask our deacons and the men who are going to help hand out our Lord's Supper to come forward. Uh, they're there in the, in the pew in front. These men are going to hand out these elements to you. I'd ask you to take one. Again, if you're a Christian, if, if you're not a Christian uh, this morning, just simply let it pass. It, it means nothing to you. You do not hurt our feelings at all. In fact, we'd rather you let it pass if that's the case. But if you're a believer here this morning, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you are a Christian. I ask that you take one of these. But just take it and hold it. There'll be some music playing as these men hand these out. After everything gets handed out, I'll give you some further direction and instruction. So let me pray. And then after prayer, men, you can hand these out. God, I thank you for the truth of your word. And I thank you for this time that you're giving us to observe this Lord's Supper. This, again, is a gift that you have given us to remind us of who we are in Christ. To remind us again, which we seem to be reminded, we need to be reminded of so often, I know I do, that I am not a Christian because of my own, but because of what Christ has done for me. This bread that I eat, this juice that I drink, does not represent my blood or my body, because neither of those have done anything for me spiritually. It represents the body and blood my Savior, Jesus, and the Savior of those in this room who know that by faith they've trusted in Christ also. So God, we thank you that you've given us this. I pray that you would work in our life through this supper. We pray that your will would be done. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.